if you have a Bible, open with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to be with you guys this morning. Hey, I'm doing all right. Good to see you. Today we're going to wrap up our series on this, um, this short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, his spiritual son, Timothy, who is, who is pastoring this church here in Ephesus. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to bring uh, correction to the church there, to appoint elders, to confront these false teachers and these troublesome leaders, and to teach God's people what it means to live as the family of God, how they ought to behave, as he says in chapter 3, in the household of God. We're going to do our best this morning with the wind, so just bear with us, but we got some experts back there. And throughout this letter, if you've been with us, throughout this letter, Paul has kind of spent most of his time uh, singling out these different groups within the church. So he's, he's, he's talked extensively about, uh, and he's given, he's given Timothy instruction on how to, how to pastor and how to care for and how to lead this congregation of all these diverse groups. So he's talked about men and women. He's talked about elders and deacons. He's talked extensively about these false teachers. He's talked about the widows. He's talked about the rich, and he's spoken directly to Timothy himself. And then here, uh, in these last few verses of chapter 6, Paul is wrapping it all up. So let's, let's read together. I'm going to begin in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Verse 11. Paul says this, But as for you, O man of God, speaking directly to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Instead, pursue righteousness and godliness Pursue faith and love and steadfastness. Pursue gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made this good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then he picks up his theme that he was addressing in the first part of chapter 6. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set their hopes on God, who, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is the rich in this present age are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. And thus storing up for themselves treasure and a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then he ends with these few verses here in beginning of verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it some have swerved from the faith Grace be with you all. God, again, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this letter. God, we thank you for Paul and his relationship with Timothy and what that teaches us. God, we thank you for this 
this short letter, God, that teaches us what it means to be in this family of God, to care for one another, to live as generous brothers and sisters. So God, help us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here uh, last week, Marcus went through the first 10 verses of uh, chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. And in, in those verses, Paul continues to highlight the, uh, the vices of these false teachers that had infiltrated the church there in Ephesus. And Paul focuses specifically, if you remember, and if you weren't here, you can go back and listen, or you can even read those first few verses now. He, he's focusing specifically on those who imagined godliness as a means of financial gain. You can see that there in verse 5 of chapter 6. There he seemed to be addressing primarily those who, who desired to be rich, who were, who were panting after wealth. And here, beginning in verse 17, Paul is addressing those who are already rich in this present age. So we'll come back to Paul's charge to Timothy in verses 11 through 16, but I really want to follow Paul's train of thought here and focus on verses 17 through 19. You know, it's hard to talk about uh, family life including life in the family of God, without talking about money. It just is. Money's an important thing uh, for all of us. And, and many of us, maybe all of us, have a very uh, complicated relationship with our money and with our stuff, right? If we're honest, we, we often are anxious when we feel like we don't have enough, or we're anxious because we have some and we're worried we'll lose it, Right? Anxiety follows us wherever we're at in the money game. We live under the delusion that money provides a kind of ultimate security for us. And, and, and it certainly does provide some security, only a measure of security when you have it. But very few of us have much control at all of whether we have it or not for very long. We tend to measure our self-worth by our net worth. Even, even those with little money, um, there's often a sentiment that if I, if I work hard enough and I have a clear enough vision and a clear enough goal that I'll be able to prosper financially as though it requires financial prosperity to validate your vision or your hard work or your goals. We have a very complicated relationship with our money. It's difficult um, for us to separate ourselves from our our money and our stuff, from our, our bank accounts and from our budget. M our money or the lack of money is often deeply connected to our identity, how we see ourselves, how we value ourselves, how well we think we're doing or how poorly we think we're doing. It's hard to separate ourselves from our debts or from our debtors. It's hard to separate ourselves from our assets or our liabilities. And it's for this reason and for many other reasons that one of the most talked about topics in Scripture is money. It may surprise you that Jesus himself talks more about money uh, than he talks about heaven and hell combined. In fact, he talks more about money than he talks about anything else by far except for the kingdom of God in general. A third of Jesus' parables are all about money. You know, if you were with us a couple years ago, we went through the Gospel of Luke, uh, straight through the book, and, and one in seven verses in the Gospel of Luke is about money. Paul mentions money in almost all of his letters, probably really in all of his letters, in one way or another. He'll, he'll either talk about the dangers of money or the powers of money. 
He'll, he'll talk about needing to raise money for God's mission or about giving it away. He'll talk about the evils of loving it or the godly use of it in ministry. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 is, is one of Paul's most famous and important passages on, on money and wealth and generosity and contentment. Again, if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here last week or hadn't read those first 10 verses of chapter 6, I encourage you to do that this week. Here, here he's instructing Timothy, Paul's instructing Timothy to jar- charge those who are wealthy in this present age to live a certain way. He's saying, for, for those who have, who have wealth in this family, they are to, they are to live a certain, they are to behave a certain way in this family of God. And before we get into Paul's specific instructions, I want to I think a little bit about how we define our terms. It's likely that the majority of us uh, out here in this courtyard or the majority of those listening to this sermon um, on a computer or on an iPhone or in a vehicle are at least on a global scale quite wealthy. I cited a study that was done, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago or so uh, by the Swiss Bank Credit Suisse, and it said that uh, it, it did a survey on global income, and the, the numbers are that if an individual makes $32,000 a year, they are in the top 1% globally. So if you make, make $32,000 a year, you are richer than 99% of the world. Of course, $32,000 is very different in the U.S. than it is in India or in Kenya. And in any community, there's going to be a a range of incomes or net worth. But the the point, I think, for us remains uh, that many of us are quite wealthy in the sense that we have uh, not only our needs met, but for many of us, maybe most of us, we have a surplus to give and to share. Again, if you're hearing this sermon, you're likely living in the developed West, and in the developed West, we live uh, in undeniable luxury compared to the rest of the world. And yet, this this great wealth and nearly unlimited access to uh, resources like healthcare or education or entertainment that 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 <laughs> that affluence that we are experiencing doesn't often, certainly not always, result in a greater satisfaction and deeper contentment. Right? We know that. It somehow, even with this affluence, it stirs in us often a greater desire for the things that we don't have. And that's what Paul is getting at. One one writer uh, in a book called uh, The Sin of Our Age, G.R. Davies, wrote this, The good life has now become inseparable from the maximum possible consumption of things. That's often how we think about the good life. It's a trap. And that's what Paul is exposing here. To to put it in more biblical language, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy, you can see it in verse 9, that there is a trap waiting for those who were driven to be rich. There's a trap. Some of us have experienced that trap. The, The trap could include feeling like you never have enough, feeling constant anxiety about never having enough, feeling anxiety about losing what you've managed to gather. Uh, One trap could be feeling like you are smarter or better or harder working than those who have less. It can produce a kind of arrogance and pride. It can produce in us this delusion that money is somehow a foolproof security against the calamities of life. And these these are dangerous and for many of us fatal traps. 
And so Paul instructs Timothy, he, he instructs Timothy to charge those who are rich in this present age to live in certain way to avoid these traps as we live as brothers and sisters in the community. And he says he gives basically these four kind of commands. Tell them not to be haughty. Tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and then they are to be generous and ready to share. And so store up for themselves a treasure, a good foundation for the future. This will pay dividends, Paul is saying. This, this, this good work is another kind of investing that will produce dividends and security for you in the long run so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. He says, charge the rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be high-minded. I'm from Oklahoma. We would say something like, don't get too big for your britches, right? Does that translate in Texas? I think it does. I think it probably does. Yeah, okay. <laughs> having, having money doesn't mean that you're better than anybody else. Having more access to more resources doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. It may mean that you're lucky. probably does. It probably means that you were just born at the right place at the right time to the right people. It may mean that you received God's favor on your work or on your investments, or having wealthy may actually just mean that you're greedy or that you're criminal or that you're exploiting the poor. In the book of Proverbs, which talks a great deal about money, um, we see examples of those who are rich in this present age, and they are rich because they saved, because they were prudent. They were rich because they were righteous. They worked hard, and so they became rich. But we also see examples in the book of Proverbs that there are some people who are rich because they are wicked. That was the payment for their wickedness. They were stingy, they were tyrants, they exploited the poor, they abused their power, and so they became rich. We also see in the book of Proverbs, for example, some examples of people who are poor because they are wicked. They were lazy, they slept when they should have worked, they didn't save and invest, they weren't generous to others, and so they were poor because they were wicked. And then there were some who were poor because they are righteous, they invested their material possessions in the kingdom of God. They gave all they had. They sacrificed for the most needy and so became poor. And so the Bible doesn't let us off too easy, right? The, the, the prosperity gospel of health and wealth for the righteous is as corrupt as a poverty gospel that says only the wicked prosper in this life. The truth is really much more complicated. And so he says, charge the rich not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to be high-minded. He doesn't call them to renounce their wealth, but instead he says not to set their hopes on it. That's the danger when you have money, right? Is to set all your hopes on it. Because you think no matter how sick I get or no matter how hard up I get or no matter what the economy is doing or no matter what happens with my job, if I have this, I'm going to be safe. And he says, you're setting your hope on the wrong things. Instead, set your hope on God, because wealth and financial prosperity, and some of us I know even in this room have experienced that it can come and go. Markets fluctuate, 
Investments go bad. Countries and full economies and currencies are never really fully stable. So he says, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So slow down for just a minute and read those few verses, those few, those few words. God, set your hopes on God who richly provides for you everything to enjoy. Set your hope on God who is richly providing you with everything to enjoy. And he says, so the rich in money should also be rich in good works. They should be generous. They should be ready to share. They should be storing up for themselves. To put it in Jesus' language, he says in in like Matthew 6, for example, to store up a a treasure to build a foundation that, that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves can never steal. Be generous. Be loose handed. Randy Alcorn says that generosity, that giving, is the real antidote to materialism. If you want to avoid the trap, be generous, be rich in good works, be ready to share. We must be loose-handed with the things of this world so that we can grasp all the more tightly to the things of the world to come. We must heed Paul's instruction to Timothy. His charge to the rich in this age is that if we are to ever be freed from the poison of greed, of covetousness, of discontent, and of fear, Be rich in good works. Don't be proud. Give a lot away. Be ready to share. Don't set your hope on the stuff that you have, but on God who is richly providing you everything that you need. Paul puts it so beautifully there in verse 19. We must must loosen our, our grip, our money, and our stuff so that we may take hold of, what does he say? That which is truly life. So this isn't just a, Paul's not just condemning them, he's giving them instructions so that they can actually live and flourish and thrive in this world. He's saying, don't hold tightly to all those things. Those things may actually sink you. Hold on to God, cling to God, that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me circle back around to verses 11 and 12. This is how he, he, he transitions. He gives this instruction to Timothy directly. He says, as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. Sorry about the wind. That's all right. When he says flee these things, what's he talking about? What, what are these things that he's referring to? He's, he's referring to the things that he's mentioned already in verses 4 and 5. So he's saying, Timothy, I want, this is, I want you to flee this kind of life, the unhealthy craving for controversy. And he, honestly, even as I was reading this this week, I thought, what, what a relevant word for Christians. I want you to flee an unhealthy craving for controversy. I want you to run away from quarrels about words, run from envy, run from dissension, run from slander, run from evil suspicion, constant friction, run away from those things. Run away from imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain. John Stott, famous uh, writer, 
theologian, he wrote, commenting on this passage, that, that the, this, this word flee means to take a constant evasion action, evasive action against, to run as far and as fast away as we can, to run in hot pursuit instead toward righteousness and godliness and faith and so on. He says the apostle gives no teaching on, on just holiness or how to attain it. He simply says, run from evil as you run away from danger. And run towards goodness as you run towards success. Run away from evil as you would run away from danger. And run towards goodness and righteousness as you would run, as you would run towards success. He says we have to give our mind and our time and energy both to fight and to run and to pursue the right things. Once we see evil as it is, we need to flee from it. Once we see goodness as the goodness is, we must pursue it with our lives. And we know that running away from the bad things and running toward the good things, it's going to be a fight, right? It's a battle that we experience. It's it's often an internal and sometimes even external war of desires, of priorities, of preferences. So Paul calls Timothy to fight the good fight, not merely in his own strength. What do you say? Fight the good fight. Fight of what? Of faith. It's this good fight. It's not not fighting merely in his own strength, but, but the fight of faith in a faithful God. I heard one writer say that this this is not a fight for victory. This is a fight from victory. We are already victorious in this fight, but we are in this struggle because we have competing desires and priorities. He's saying run to the good, flee from the evil, so that you too can take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You know, in some ways, I think the heart of this passage is a section that's often overlooked. It's this this prayer or this doxology there in verses 12 through 16. So if you have a Bible, look look with me there, those few verses. I'm going to read it for us again. We've already read it once, but let me read it again for us. So Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made this good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who, who he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, to him be eternal dominion. Amen. Now that that would have been a pretty good place to land the plane, right? He goes on, but this is a a reorienting kind of verse. It slows everything. Do you feel that when you read it? Do you feel when you read it, it just slows everything down? Even the language he's using. He's saying, I'm charging you, Timothy, in the presence of this only sovereign, blessed God who who is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be honor and dominion. He's he's bringing all of these things that he's been talking about to Timothy. 
Again, it's like a father and a son. He's talking to his young spiritual son. And it's like he just stops him for a minute. He slows him down. And then he, he brings all of his life under the gaze of his sovereign creator. This whole letter is so practical, you see? If you've been reading it, you, you, you follow along. This is, he spends so much time on the qualifications for these different roles and offices within the church. He spends, he spends a, an, an incredible amount of time just talking about the logistics of caring for the widows. He spends so much time on the details of this false teaching that were circulating in this community. It would be easy for us and easy for Timothy in this ministry, in this church, in a hard place, in life. It's, it's easy to get lost in the sort of ordinariness of it all. Or the earthiness of it all. The mundane of it all. To forget about what we're actually doing. Or under whose gaze we're doing it, what this life is all about, what our family is all about, and whose family it really is. With these few verses, you see what Paul's doing. He's, he's bringing it all together. He's saying our, our lives are lived in the presence of the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Consider how and you can just take any part of your life. You can take your marriage. You can take your parenting. You can take your job. You can take your bank account. You can take your sexuality. You can take whatever. And he's saying, bring all that under the gaze of a sovereign God. Just bring it out under the... Take it out of the darkness and bring it under his gaze. Live your life. Do this ministry. Your roles, your, your vocation, your desires, your commitment. Bring all of that. Every moment, everything we are, every aspect of our lives under the clear gaze of the sovereign Lord. Into his presence. Meaning you're not just, it's not about what you think about this thing. You're not doing it for the praise of anybody else. You're not even doing it for your own approval or judgment. Your life is to be lived in view of and in the presence of this holy God. What are you hiding from him? What are you holding back from him? What do you, what do you think he doesn't see? He does see, church. He's the only blessed sovereign. He sees it all. He knows it all, and he loves you. He's, he's welcoming you into his gaze. Your, your bill has been paid. And Paul is telling his spiritual son, all of this ministry, all of this, all this stuff, of all this, the mundane reality of who you are, son, bring it under the gaze of God's watchful eye. You see how that... that that does a lot of things. That infuses everything that we do with such meaning and power. Do you see that? It, gives, it, it brings such purpose to all the little things of our life. But you know, somehow it also does something else to me. When I read that, I also, I don't have to take myself too seriously. It does both of those things, right? It like infuses all of it with really deep meaning and purpose. But at the same time, it says, you know, it's not just... It's this sovereign king I'm bringing my life to, the creator of all things. 
Let's live lives in full view of God. To please him, to honor him, to bring glory to him. To, that, that our lives, even just as Paul says, that our lives would be part of that eternal dominion that he's saying. Paul ends his letter with this final charge to Timothy in this very typical greeting. He says very simply, grace be with you. That, that, that you there at the end is actually plural. That, that he's, he's been, this whole letter, this whole time Paul's been writing, he's, he's directed his attention to Timothy himself, to Timothy directly, but he ends his letter with this plural pronoun. Meaning this letter is not just for Timothy. This letter is for the church. This letter is for the family of God. This letter is for, for you, church. It's for me. To bring our lives into and under the gaze of the sovereign king. Let me say a prayer for us. God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. God, that it speaks to all the details of our life. But God, it brings those details under your gaze and into your hand. I pray that you'd be with us this morning. God, speak to us, encourage us. God, challenge us. God, for some, we need to remember, God, that you love us, that you pursue us. God, that you have been gracious to us. And God, also many of us need to be convicted of sin to bring things out of darkness into your marvelous light. So God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.